Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBHFM. I'm Sherry Alexander, and this week we're talking to Chris Pena, author most recently of Death Over a Diamond Stud, The Assassination of the Orleans Parish District Attorney. And this is a true crime. This is not fiction. Correct. <laughs> Welcome to Writers Forum, Chris. It's nice to see you. Thank you very much for having me. You didn't start out to be a writer of true crime. You had some interest in theater, but then your big interest was really nursing. Yes, ma'am. I my my collegiate education started at Nichols State University in Thibodeau, and I was a theater major. And about two or three years into it, I decided to switch into nursing. My mom was a nurse. So I had a double major. I graduated in 75 with a theater degree, and then I got my associate degree uh, in nursing at Nichols State in 76, and then just pursued that. Eventually got my bachelor's degree in my master's program, uh, ma- ba- master's uh, degree. And, and you then, were a nurse. You right, spent I was a nurse many all, years. During all this time, and then I came back and taught Nichols. Were you a specialty in yes, nursing? Yes, ma'am, in ICU. I was an ICU nurse for many, many years, probably since... Well, I graduated in 76. I was in and out of ICU from 76 to when I officially hung it up in 2009. And you also taught nursing. Yes, ma'am. I taught at Nichols for 26 years. What got you interested in history? I've always had a a love of history. As a kid, I used to love history. But I guess the thing that really uh, sparked my interest in history was Ken Burns' Civil War documentary, you know, the, the... what, an 18-hour documentary on the Civil War that Ken Burns produced in the early 90s. And that really got me interested in local Civil War history. And so I wrote a number of books chronicling the war in southeast Louisiana. And from then, I, um, I, got, I just got interested in, uh, with a fascination in, in, in crime dramas, uh, with all of the crime dramas that were on television and all of the... the um, well, let's talk about the Civil War because you really had an intense interest. You're also an, an actor besides yeah, um, writing about it. Well, I, I was. I kind of gave that up. But, I, yes, I used to – I had a Confederate and Yankee uniform and went to Port Hudson and we did some reenactments in Virginia. And, yeah, I did that for probably – since I probably did that for about 10 years. And really. your books – one of your books – which you actually revised, specialized in the Civil War in Lafouche Parish. Right, and well, in the southeast, well, in the in the Bayou Lafouche region, correct. And um, your family, you also wrote about your family, your own family. Right, I wrote, I wrote a uh, actually, I wrote two editions of my fam on my dad's side of the family. They, my grandfather uh, and grandmother on my dad's side were. Uh, Living in Mexico at the height of the Mexican Revolution that was fought between 1910 and 1920, uh, they were fleeing the violence. They fled and went into Laredo in 1915. Uh, my dad had four brothers that were born in Mexico. My dad and the other three were born. They were a total of eight children. Were, the rest were born in, in Laredo. And of the, there were seven brothers and one girl. The baby was the girl. <laughs> and of the seven brothers, six served in World War II. So my family history chronicles their military service. One of my uncles fought and was wounded at Iwo Jima. He joined the Navy. I mean, joined the Marines 
And he was one of the fellows uh, that uh, was born, one of the brothers that was born in Mexico. So rather, you know, so it was. It so just that's a, why your interest so much in the military, right. in wars. Right. Now, um, how did that turn into an interest in true crime? Well, my wife and I, we've been married for 42 years. My wife and I love watching crime dramas, and we were really got hooked into like Homicide Hunter and Forensic Files and that type of thing. And I just had this. I think I can, I said, let me see if I can, because at the time, you know, I, I am currently living in Knoxville, Tennessee, and so I decided, let me uh, let me search and see if there's some unique, interesting uh, murder that occurred in the Knoxville region, and I can locate that. So I went on, I went on the internet and just searched famous murders, and I got this page called uh, Murderpedia, and it basically chronicles every major uh, Crime and so I was, I was it's alphabetically arranged I, and I ended up getting to Deshaun Etienne Deshaun uh, the murder occurred in 1889 and it happened in New Orleans I'm one I I live, I live many many years in Thibodeau and so that's what turned me on to the first book that I wrote that was published by Pelican in 19 and in, in in February of, of uh, 17. Well, let's talk about it because you said uh, it's going to be the first book in a trilogy. Right. Now you've written the second one right. and we'll talk about the second one. But let's t- what did Mr. Deschamps do? Who was he? Well, he was a, a dentist. Etienne Deschamps was a dentist who practiced in New Orleans, but he also emerged himself in uh, magnetism. Uh, it was basically an alternative form of medicine. It was basically hocus pocus, put your hands over them, if they, if you make them feel as if they're cured, they're going to be cured. So it was all very psychosomatic type of thing. I, I wrote down the ad that you published: "Searching for truth, doing it well, all maladies cured by magnetism, treatment at domicile." That was he. Yeah, that was his uh, little. Uh, he had a, a a card, a business card that he had created with that on it, and it was also advertised in the local paper. The paper at the time was called the Daily Picayune. Was was magnetism more uh, credible than it is today? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very, very popular in the <clears throat> 1850s, all the way probably well into the, the early 20th century. Uh, just another alternative. Basically, individuals thought that diseases were caused by bad, for lack of a better word, bad vibrations. And so using a magnet would draw that, those bad vibes out of your body and and be transferred somewhere else usually transferred to the healer, and then the healer had the power to remove him himself. I mean, I mean it that, sounds plausible. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't have the knowledge that we right. have 100 years later. Right. I mean, magnetism is a very strong, mysterious force. So people actually would be treated by him. Right. But unfortunately, he wasn't the most, um, shall we say, ethical Correct. of tennis. Well, he had... He had just he had stumbled on some what he believed buried treasure from Jean Lafitte in the Barataria Bay region, and the victim, this little twelve-year-old girl, her father, uh, Etienne Deschamps, convinced his father that he could locate this buried treasure if he had a suitable subject that he could hypnotize, and through hypnotism, while she was in the trance, she'd be able to. uh, visualize where exactly this buried treasure was. But he so, needed a, a young virgin. Right, exactly. Of, of the purest heart and mind and soul. 
in his words. And so he, and so the father, there was no, the mother had died years before this. And so it was just him raising his other children. Well, actually they had two girls raising other children. So he was alone. He was just Jules. a very simple, yeah, Jules, a ditch. That's how and he pronounced he, it. And he, um, uh, he, this, this, uh, Etienne Deschamps, the dentist was uh, a very charismatic person. And he, he trusted him and he allowed, allowed uh, the daughter Juliet to be under his wing, so to speak. And eventually they ended up with a, they had a sexual relations. Well, now, well, I mean, from your research, it sounds like she was really naive. Oh, and, yeah, very, very and, so. And by today's standards, it's just unbelievable that a father would let his two daughters just run over and play with this dentist and get mesmerized. All Right. I mean, could he possibly have been that trusting? Oh, he was very, very trusting. He was, he was, I, I he was, obviously he was distraught when, when the daughter died, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a complete surprise. He had no idea that any kind of sexual activity with his oldest 12-year-old daughter was occurring. Well, she was 12. Right. And her little sister was nine. Nine years old. And they used to just well, run over there every yeah, afternoon. Right, after school. With... School, the, the school was like right next door. Etienne lived in, the, the current location is 714 St. Peter Street. That's the old coffee pot restaurant. If that's not familiar, everybody knows where... Um, Oh, what is the bar that's next door? I just had it. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, you get hurricanes. You get hurricanes from it. Um, yeah. Golly, I can't believe I can't remember the name of the uh, the bar. Well, anyway, uh, the, anyway this, this their their school wasn't a regular right, right, school. Yeah, it was yeah, like yeah, a, it was a private, private right? Private, and they uh, they they were at that school right next door. And on the way home, they would pass in front of his house, and he lived upstairs. Of course, it wasn't a restaurant at the time; it was a boarding house. And so he, they would go upstairs, he would mesmerize her. I mean, what was the point of that? Well, he would, the day before, the day before the little girl uh, died, for the first time he used chloroform, and that was to render her unconscious to be more, and I guess that's when he really got sexual, why she was unconscious. So what was the ostensible purpose? I mean, she it, wasn't curing her of anything? Or? Right, it was just... It was just another method of her being put into a trance so that she could verbalize the the uh, burial site of John Lafitte's treasure in Barataria Bay, which was just a big scam. I think it was just him wanting to have sexual favors with her. Well, anyway, on this day in question, and your research is phenomenal. How long did it take you to write for that? The first book for the uh, the strange case of Dr. Etienne de Sham murder in the New Orleans French Quarter, I started that... Actually, I started writing it and researching it in April of uh, 2015, and then it came out in February of 17. Now, it, it took about a year to publish. So I, 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 it took about four months to do the research and to write the book, and then protracted period of time to get it published and such. Well, you, it's wonderfully detailed, and you have all these um, maps and uh, drawings and things like that. So it really brings it alive. And it's so nice that you put the, as you point out, the current address because a right. hundred and whatever years ago, um, we completely remembered the French Quarter since then. Right. So anyway, on this particular day, 
working backwards, he, for whatever reason, used chloroform right. on her and had to run out and get more chloroform. Correct. He didn't have enough. And the sister, the kid's sister, didn't seem to inhale it. She was right. suspicious. She was a little bit more street smart than the older sister for some reason. Because he had offered chloroform. Now, the day before, they drank chloroform. And the younger sister, Laurence, uh, remembers waking up. And she had vomited, obviously, when she was unconscious. So she had enough sense that she was going to mess with chloroform the next day. So they drank it the first day. And apparently, everything was obviously, everything was okay. And ne neither of the girls said anything to the daddy about the chloroform. Well, the next day, rather than drinking it, he put it on a rag and put it up to the face. And, he, of course, he offered the younger girl chloroform. Of course, both of the girls were told to undress. So we have a 9-year-old and a 12-year-old undressed. Naked, and naked. then he undressed. And, of course, he undressed. And the 9-year-old had enough sense not to inhale it, but the 12-year-old did. To her, I guess it was just another game. It was a game or it was fun or whatever. And, um, well, the and whole she thing... ended up dying of an overdose. He did have a trial, and um, interesting to me was a couple of characters at the trial. One is the, um, I guess he was a medical examiner at the time. A coroner. Yeah. Coroner. Uh, Dr. Lemonnier, is yeah, that how he was Yeah, Lemonnier. Lemonnier. Now, ordinarily, he was more or less an advocate for mentally ill people. Correct. And that was um, Deschamps' defense. Right. That he was mentally ill, but... Lemonnier didn't buy it. Correct. Because he was, uh, uh, Deschamps was in prison or incarcerated at, the, at Paris prison for about a year and a half or so after the trial. And, and the coroner was able to ex to examine him, observe him for a protracted period of time. And he just didn't put on the airs of, the, of a criminally insane. He was quite lucid, very rational. And he would play... If he played the insanity card, he would do so in front of newspaper reporters and that type of thing. Uh, so, I mean, he knew that he was tricking everyone. The coroner did. So he didn't buy it So even though minute. he was ordinarily sympathetic. Right. But uh, He knew the difference between a truly insane individual and someone that was fainting uh, insanity. And he clearly believed that Deshaun was, uh, was not... Uh, was not criminally insane, that he was very much aware of what he did. Now, he was convicted right. and condemned. I mean, it was a capital crime. Right. And then there were some sort of appeals, and something I really didn't understand, the judge, Judge Marr. Right. Robert Marr. Right. He had written, upholding the uh, the um, sentence, but right. he disappeared. Yeah. Well, he was, after the trial... Occurred. Of course, it was appealed to the Louisiana Supreme Court, and they basically upheld the conviction. Well, they threw out the first conviction because they didn't give the defense enough time to prepare the case. So there was a second trial. At the second trial, he was convicted, and again, then it was appealed again to the Louisiana Supreme Court. They upheld that conviction. And uh, the next step was basically to bring it before the Board of Pardons, now, the Board of Pardons at that time was made up of three members. It was the uh, lieutenant, uh, uh, the, um, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general for the state of Louisiana, and then the third person was an ad hoc member. It was the presiding judge over the trial. 
So that would change based upon who the, who, who the who, judge was. Who this judge was. So Judge Morris, for that particular case regarding Deshaun, he became part of the Board of Pardons. And so uh, he, they were, and in order to, uh, to uh, revert, in order to uh, not pardon, but to commute the sentence to perhaps life in prison, you had to have two out of the three members of the Board of Pardons to say, yes, we need, we want, we recommend to the governor that they commute the sentence to life in prison or whatever they wanted to commute it to. Uh, and it ultimately was up to the, the, the governor, but the governor would always side with whatever the part of pardons said. But a, a week or two before they, or within days of the execution, Robert Morris, the judge, disappears. They assume that he drowned. Now he's taking a walk in Yeah, Auburn he's taking Park. a walk in Hoffman Park, and they last seen they I see him there every day. <laughs> and they they he was last seen kind of walking along the levee. This is April of eighteen ninety two. The river is quite high, I guess, because of the melting snows up north. The river levels rise in the spring in the Missis in the lower Mississippi River. The current was very swift. He was quite old. He was in his seventies. He probably lost his footing. He fell into the water and drowned. And of course, his body was never recovered. Never. It was uh, just the timing of it was right. so mysterious. Yeah, but right. it was assumed he had already upheld the sentence. He had right. voted to uphold right. it. And right. according to his son, Robert Marsh Jr. And they never found his body. Never found his body. So they upheld, and then he was executed. Well, it's a. It was very. One thing I want to say about this, the, the sexual aspects of this, uh, Deshaun was never charged with rape. Uh, he could have been, and rape was a capital crime is, itself. But the age of consent in Louisiana in eighteen, up until about nineteen twenty, was twelve years old. Oh, so uh, you, now the, so she, she, if she, and, and the daughter uh, and the sister, Laurence, who's nine years old, actually witnessed her twelve-year-old sister and Deshaun having sex, and it was consensual, and so he was never charged with rape because of that reason. So uh, uh, now if you think 12 years old is kind of a low threshold for consent in neighboring Mississippi and in the great state of Tennessee where I currently live, the age of consent at that time was 10. And I think in Georgia, if I'm not mistaken, I think the age of consent was nine years old. I don't know where they get this nine and 10-year-old range. I can kind of semi-see the 12-year-old, but only because of... uh, of uh, the female coming into her ways, being reproductively mature and such, and being a journalist, but, I have no opinion on anything yeah. political like that. <laughs> but the second one, the second book, um, just came out, right? And of your trilogy, it's called "Death Over a Diamond Stud." Whose diamond stud? No, the diamond stud was a pennant worn on the shirt of an individual by the name of Daniel Carroll. And Lewis Lyons, who ended up murdering the district attorney, was accused of stealing that diamond stud. He had nothing to do with the theft of that stud. And he um, was arrested, incarcerated, spent the night in jail. He was eventually adjudicated completely. He was... He wasn't even there. Some yeah, other he wasn't even there. there. So he was a completely... Uh, every All the charges were dropped. He was... Uh, everything was fine, but between that 10-day period where his name was finally cleared, his name was dragged through the mud. And he was in prison with disgusting people. People, yeah, for one, for overnight. 
<laughs> and he bonded out and such. But his name was thrown all over the newspaper, so his reputation was ruined, according to him. So a year later, he hires uh, um, J. Ward Gurley, who ultimately became the district attorney, and his, and his uh, partner, Dallas Mellons. Yeah, Mellons actually handled and the they case. Filed, they filed, they, yeah, Mellons actually filed the, the civil lawsuit. He was seeking $5,000 in damage and $40 in court, court, uh, court cost. And, of course, that, that, that lawsuit failed. It was a bench trial, and the judge ruled in favor of, of uh, Daniel Carroll, uh, and uh, so it went nowhere. But then uh, Gurley, who, who became the district attorney, took over the case when it went through the Louisiana Supreme, because they, uh, they wanted to appeal the original verdict and such. Yeah, but Gurley judgment. was pretty busy being yeah, a pretty busy. DA. Right. So it took a number of years. So this was... From the time this diamond stub was stolen until the assassination was eight years. So all of this time, all these legal maneuvers and court appearances, most of them before the Louisiana Supreme Court, were, all of that occurred within an eight-year period. And finally, by the end of the eight years, Louis Lyons, who was the original person accused of stealing this diamond stud, had basically had enough and ended up killing Gurley in his private office. Because he didn't do enough to get to get justice, to, to, justice. Right, correct. Now, why he didn't get do? Why he didn't shoot the original partner who failed the original lawsuit is the sixty-four thousand dollars question. But he I'm went sure over. Mr. Mellon was quite yeah, relieved. Quite relieved, and he said as much. But the again, the question was: Was Lewis Lyons insane? I mean, had this frustration over this ruination driven him insane right that was the that was the major and that was part of his defense he was uh, his defense attorney sought you know that he was you know he's innocent by reason of insanity which was a a, a viable way of going about you know seeking relief well we get for the patient. same dr lemonnier right who sided with him. yeah was you know you would have thought, but no, he was not considered insane this time. Right. Even though the doctor this time did think he was. Correct. Which but, was kind of, that's why I thought it was kind of ironical because uh, the with Deschamps, he, of course, uh, Lemonnier is the, is the coroner and he believes he was not insane. And there were a bunch of doctors that came to visit Deschamps in prison. They said, yes, 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 he is insane. Well, with Lyons, who assassinated the district attorney, Lumiere is not the governor anymore, but he's consulted by the defense team. He goes and visits him in prison and says, yes, he is. So it's basically this, he's using the same criteria the same, that yeah. he knocked out years le- earlier. But it goes the other way. Right. And it was very interesting, a little side story you went into with the K. Ruse uh, family. I have a friend who was a K. Ruse and... For some reason, this woman and another guy, they just thought that he was being railroaded and he was innocent, and they carried on a oh, yeah, lot of with correspondence. Case, right, yeah. yeah. A lot, yeah. Correct. And went back and forth. But anyway, well, what's the third one going to be? Well, let me just give you the, if I have time, I'll give you the why I chose these three. They're all well-known, publicized murder cases at the turn of the 20th century. I wanted to write three different types of murders, 
And I wanted to chronicle the criminal justice system in New Orleans as it evolved from the late 1880s up until 1910 and so on. Because all three of them have different aspects of the criminal justice system. So with the Deshaun book, The Strange Case of Dr. A.T. and Deshaun, the death was by chloroform poisoning. The second book, uh, The uh, Death Over a Diamond Stud, the assassination of the New Orleans district attorney dealt with uh, a small arms fire. I mean, he was murdered using a handgun. And the third murder dealt with, uh, in this the book that I just turned into Pelican uh, a week or so ago, uh, will deal with someone being robbed and smashed over the head with a dumbbell and then body thrown into the old basin, which was connected to the Carondelet Canal, it flowed into Bayou St. John. Now, the Cronduck Canal and the Old Basin are completely covered over. They did that in the 1920s. And the old Cronduck Canal is now Lafitte Greenway, if you, you can see that just Was below. he convicted also? Yeah, all three of these are convicted. All three of these are capital murders. All three were hanged. Um, well, th- these first two books, they were hanged in New Orleans Parish uh, Prison. At different prisons, so that's why each one has a different prison and what was you know, mechanism and charity effect, hospital charity changed. hospital that and then uh, the third book that I just submitted he was executed by then executions uh, were uh, uh, beginning to be uh, done at the uh, state penitentiary and, and no no and in Baton Rouge oh it was in Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge well look forward to that one is that going to be next year well, well it's I turn it in. Uh, about a week or so ago, it takes about. It's, I'm figuring sometime after Mardi Gras of 2020. Oh, okay. So it'll be. So, you know, there won't be any book, new book, for 19. It's not going to be enough time. All right, we'll put us down for a return visit. Right. Um, <clears throat> very interesting, and uh, I, I should say there's no suspense in the, some true crime because you you start right out with the executions, right. which is very dramatic. Um, so that's why I was asking you about the third one, because that won't affect your readers. The uh, former U.S. attorney, Jim Letton, we're very familiar with him around here, and he gave you a blurb. He said, this is beautifully written, this is the second book, beautifully written with a vivid portrayal of the surrounding historic and intimate physical details of the city and its people at that precise time frame. You've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest this week, Chris Pena, author most recently of Death Over a Diamond Stud, The Assassination of the Orleans Parish District Attorney. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.